Now, this is an important reminder. Holy does not mean magical. It does not mean better. It is that which is set apart for God. So the water we use in baptism is not koinos. It is not common water, but it's also not magical. Before we pray the prayer over the water, before we use that water for baptism, it's not dirty. It's not defiled water. It's just regular water that hasn't been set apart for God. So note this, what makes it holy is God's action, not ours. This is always important anytime like you're reading about the temple and the Ark of the Covenant is so holy that if you touch it, you die, or, oh, only the priests can do this. Like, only the priest is allowed to, you remember, eat the bread of the presence. But it's not because they're magical. It's because that which is set apart for God is holy. Because it is set apart for God. So this is interesting to think about in your own life. What it means is there is nothing in your life you cannot offer to God. I mean, except for stuff that's overtly sinful. (laughs) Don't be like, well, I'm now a cat murderer for God. Um, I'm setting aside this, this, you know, goat's blood as a sacrifice to God. Though you could, it's biblical, like, but maybe talk to me first. (laughs) I'll give you some better liturgical interpretations of things you could set aside. But your family dinner, it's not Holy Communion, but if you offer it up to God, it is set apart for him. It's holy in a different way than communion is holy. There's more going on there. But your common, common things can be holy, is the point I'm trying to make. But back to the Pharisees. Hand washing before eating is not in Levitical law. There is no law of Moses that says you have to wash your hands before you eat. It's a good idea. You should all do it. <laughs> but it is not Levitical law. There is some instruction about hand washing in the law, but only for purification after touching unclean objects. So there is no, there is no uh, legal requirement for it. This shows us that there is a diversity of practice among the Jewish community at this time. We know this. And again, like I said on Sunday, if you heard my homily, we think that the Pharisees are just like obnoxious rule followers who like invent these laws that don't exist. And that's not completely wrong. They have, they have expanded the law about making things holy or unclean to include the common meal. But the emphasis here is on what's called the tradition of the elders. And Mark even says this in verse 3, For Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. So there are traditions that have been handed down that are not in law. Interestingly, first century religious political dispute, the tradition of the elders is oral tradition followed by the Pharisees and rejected by the Sadducees. So if you want to know what makes Pharisees and Sadducees different from each other, the Pharisees follow oral tradition, the Sadducees do not. A joke I heard from my childhood rector Also, you can remember this, the Pharisees believe in resurrection, the Sadducees do not, which is why they're sad, you see. (laughs) So if you ever try to remember who believes in the resurrection, not the Sadducees, because that's why they're sad, you see. So then Jesus quotes from Isaiah. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders? And Jesus says in verse 6, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites as it was written, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrine. Once again, Jesus is not quoting the scriptural text exactly. Exactly, at least not the text that we 
now have 2,000 years later. But it doesn't really matter because the emphasis that Mark is making is Jesus is in line with the prophets, specifically the prophet Isaiah. And one of Isaiah's big things was, Israel, you are so focused on making the proper sacrifices, and yet there are poor and hungry people among you. I have given you everything you need, and yet there are, you, your sacrifice isn't living up to what I expect of you. You're focusing, not that sacrifice is wrong, or that offering sacrifice, like we, we need to offer sacrifice properly. If we don't, it's idolatry. But it's also sort of idolatrous to put all your eggs in the sacrifice ritual basket and not attend to what the sacrifice is for, which is feeding the people of Israel. We sometimes do this thing in church where it's like, well, which is more important, worship or mission? We sometimes have to do this because money is finite. (laughs) But that's actually the wrong question to ask. Our worship is what fuels our mission. This is what makes the church different from a, a nonprofit or a service organization, is that we offer up our mission we set it aside to make it not common but holy as a continuation of our worship. So we offer bread and wine and money on God's altar, and then we offer ourselves, our souls and bodies, in service to the Lord. And at the same time, so there is no, there is no mission without worship. That is the engine that drives our mission. If we are all focused on doing the right things, on following the right rules, on, on worshiping, then, you know, again, like I said in my sermon, like, who is the best at worship? <laughs> um, then we're actually also right in line with what Jesus is saying about the Pharisees. You've put the emphasis in the wrong place. Interestingly, this is such a tangent. I gotta stop. God, please be my helper. (laughs) In the last day, in the end of times, when God gathers all people to himself, and all the hungry people have been fed, and everyone is housed, and we dwell in the house of the Lord forever, he leads us in green pastures, there will still be worship. We will still gather together to praise God. We will no longer need mission because God will be all in all, and yet praise will continue. So the question isn't which is better, but which is how, are, how is the flow of energy moving? Why are we doing the things we're doing? Verses 9 through 13 are confusing. There's like a lot, we're going to mostly skip over them because there's a lot of details here about Jewish sacrificial law and um, offering money in the temple that we don't super need to go into. Um, If you want to talk about it later, just wait, like come find me at some point. But then note in verse 14, Jesus called the crowd again and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person which defiles itself, which can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. He then explains this to, the, to his disciples privately. This follows a pattern. So, note the movement here. Scribes and Pharisees, Jesus teaches the crowd... Jesus explains it to his disciples. And in his explanation, this, thing, this is very interesting. So in verse 18, he said to them, do you also fail to understand? Note, the answer to that question is yes, and they're going to keep failing to understand a lot over the next, the coming chapters. 
Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile, since it enters not the heart but the stomach, and goes out into the sewer? Thus he declared all foods clean, in parenthetical. So this is very interesting historically. Remember, Mark is written in the context of the destruction of the temple. Mark is written in the context of the Jewish war with Rome. Jesus has been raised. There's this kind of fledgling community in synagogues, this fledgling Christian community. And then there's the continuing Jewish community. Both are trying to figure out how do we continue to worship God without the temple? The Pharisees are the ones who win this debate for Jews. For the continuing Jewish community, it is the Pharisees who become the ancestors of what we now call rabbinic Judaism. Why? Because remember, the Pharisees have this oral tradition, this law, this emphasis, not on temple sacrifices, but on the word, the law, and the tradition around the law of God. So the Pharisees, and later the rabbis, say, well, there is still a temple. It is God's law. It is God's word. And they become the continuing Jewish community. The church answers this question differently. There is still a temple. It is the temple of Jesus's body. Christ is the temple. So really, you know, Coming out of the destruction of Rome, you have these two communities that are really, if not sisters, cousins, both trying to to answer these questions. How do we continue to worship the God of Israel? So remember, we have to read Mark in context. Most of us here don't keep kosher. Um, We follow the more Gentile the the Gentile interpretation of how to worship the God of Israel. And so Mark gives this note. Mark is written to Gentiles. And so in the early church, there were a few different groups of Christians. We know this from Paul's letters, too, that were emerging, trying to figure out, okay, how do we deal with the the Pharisees, the rabbinic, the the continuing Jewish community, and specifically with the Jewish laws we have inherited? There are Jewish Christians and Gentile converts who keep the full Mosaic law, including dietary restrictions and circumcision. I think we talked about this a little bit in Romans. This is always the smallest groups because adult Gentile men do not want to get circumcised. (laughs) It's a very big threshold if you've grown up a Roman soldier (laughs) to now need to get circumcised. Never a popular choice. There are Jewish Christians and Gentile converts who do not insist on circumcision, but keep some of the Mosaic laws. They keep some dietary laws. They keep some laws, um, some of this tradition of the elders. This, it appears, is primarily who Matthew is writing to. Matthew is primarily writing to Jewish Christians and Gentile converts who have um, a deeper connection to the Jewish community. So Matthew's gospel sounds a lot more Jewish than Mark's does. There are the third group, Gentile converts and Jewish Christians who do not insist on circumcision or dietary laws. This is the author, this is Mark's audience, This is the audience of Romans. Um, This is most of the Gentile churches to whom Paul writes. They are Jewish Christians and Gentile converts who see Jesus as not a break with the law, but a fulfillment of the law. And so there is no longer a need to be marked by circumcision and dietary laws. You are marked by Christ. And then there are Jewish Christians and Gentile converts who do not insist on laws and see no significance in the continuing Jewish rituals. The first group and the last group primarily went away. Um, Because 
you can't, because why? No Old Testament, no Jesus. <laughs> there is something significant. The, the Old Testament does not become obsolete because of Jesus. Quite the opposite. It's only by reading the Old Testament, by understanding the law of Moses, that we get what Jesus is doing in the first place. Jesus only makes sense in light of Jewish rituals. If you really want to see this, look at the Gospel of John, where Jesus is the Passover lamb. If Passover has no significance, Jesus has no significance. So Mark is kind of reflecting this, this community trying to figure out what to do, and I think it's pretty clear where Mark's church lands. Thus he declares all foods clean. That's not really like an apply it to your life <laughs> scriptural point, but it is interesting and it's helpful for thinking about how Mark's, all Christian texts reflect the needs and concerns of that particular community. And so to remember, too, when Jesus seems really hard on the Pharisees, this is not like Jesus, Mark's gospel is written, uh, one, pre-Holocaust. So we have a different understanding of the relationship between the Jewish community and power state power, authority, oppression, genocide, than Mark would. In Mark's gospel, the Pharisees are the dominant power, and the Christian community is the weaker power. So what this means, and we talked about this a lot in Romans, we should never take Mark's gospel and say, like, well, this is why, like, this is why the church gets to oppress Jews, which has happened in Christian history and should be repented of. We should remember that in this context, the Pharisees are actually have won. They have won the day. And this is why Mark is so punchy about Pharisees. <laughs> it's like, in, you know, it's like reading about all the battles between the Democrat Party and the Whig Party. We're like, what the heck are wigs? <laughs> like, what, is, what does that even mean? That's sort of how far, at least, we're more removed from, or the bull moose party, I love that. Bring back the bull moose party because it's the best name of all political parties. I don't actually know what they stand for, so maybe if they're like pro-slavery, I apologize, <laughs> but bring back the name. <laughs> um, and so there is this, you know, this, this distance, a context we can't understand. Okay, we've spent too much time here. The last thing I want to draw your attention to is in verse 19. Remember where Jesus says, defilement enters the heart. The heart is so key, both in Old Testament scripture, in the Jewish understanding of the body, that Jesus, the second temple Jewish world. It is the heart, not the brain, that is the seat of thinking, of emotion, of your being. Who you are is your heart. And remember, too, we talked about their hardness of heart. Hardness of heart is a willful closing off of yourself from God in Scripture. Jesus is going to talk about this more with the disciples. And so this is something interesting because, you know, <laughs> it's so countercultural. I remember at one point in college, I was having trouble with something, and I called my mom, who is wonderful, and she was like, well, I think you should just follow your heart. And I was like, well, if I knew what my heart was saying, I wouldn't be calling you. <laughs> this was not my first choice, believe me. <laughs> but we have this kind of glorified idea of the self, where it's like the heart is totally pure. And if you just listen to your heart and follow your heart, you will always make the right decisions. Jesus warns us about this. Defilement comes from within the human heart. The human heart is also fallen. There is no, like, listening to your heart that gets you out of sinning. This is actually what Calvin meant when he talked about total depravity. 
Have you heard this term before? People will talk about like, oh, in the Reformation, the idea of being like um, total depravity, totally depraved. Poor Calvin gets a bad rap on this. Um, later Calvinists haven't helped his rap, but um, people will say, oh, well, that meant that the Reformers thought that we were like completely sinful. We could not be worse than we are. We're totally depraved. Trust me, you could be worse than you are. <laughs> you are not totally depraved. None of us are. We, there's always further to fall. What he meant was, there's no part of you that is free from sin and doesn't need redeeming, even the heart. So this is countercultural, because we live in a, like, in a society that's all about, like, well, I speak my truth, I follow my heart, I, you know, all these issues of identity, like, who I am is how I feel, and Jesus and the early church would say, maybe be a little careful about trusting your heart. <laughs> You trust God's word. You need to interpret God's word with other people because your heart will come up with a lot of things for you to do <laughs> that are not necessarily in your best interest. And in fact, the times I've gotten most in trouble have been when I was following my heart. <laughs> not when I was following, like, say, good advice from a mature Christian. <laughs> but instead was like, well, this is just like, I feel really strongly about this, so I'm going to do it. So there's a warning here. Maybe don't follow your heart so much. Okay. Mark 7, 24 to 29. This is a fascinating story. Jesus has dispensed with the, Gentile, with the Pharisees, and it says, from there, I've completely forgot about my slides. Okay, here we are. From there, he went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. This is so interesting. This is different from what we've seen before. So from there, he set out. Literally, he rose up and went to Tyre. So remember, this is why we talk so much about setting. Tyre is a Phoenician city. It is predominantly Greek. The people living here are Gentiles. We know from Josephus, Jewish scholar, Jewish historian, contemporary of Mark, that the people of Tyre are bitter enemies of Jews. And actually in the Jewish war, when the war breaks out in AD 66, about the time Mark is written, the Tyrians imprison and kill many Jews. They actually ally with Rome against the Jews. So Jesus is in hostile territory. This may be why, note this too, he does not have his disciples with him. This is the first time we've seen since repent for the kingdom of God is at hand that he has gone somewhere alone. Isn't that interesting? He rises up alone. The crowds have been following him. He leaves the crowds. He leaves his disciples, and he goes to Tyre alone. And he enters a house. So apparently there's at least one household there that is willing to receive him. But note this too. Word about Jesus has spread so far that even these people who are hostile to him come and find him. This is, remember, Jesus is the one who is stronger. So apparently here, he is stronger even than these sort of ethnic and religious divisions. Because these Gentiles who are hostile to Jews are so excited that he's here. Verse 25, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him and came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, of Syrophoenician origin, she begged him that the demon be cast out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Okay, a few things to note. Right away, Mark says, right away a woman comes to him. This, 
I think, Mother Barbara opinion, is one of these Markan sandwiches with the, um, the Gennesarean demoniac, who as soon as Jesus gets out of the boat, right away he comes to him. There's this sort of, it's another unclean spirit. There are these parallels. I also wonder if there's a parallel here. This is not in a commentary. This is just Barbara's thought. Um, with the daughter of the leader of the synagogue, whose little daughter, the word is the same. So the leader of the synagogue, the a symbol of Jewish authority, has a sick daughter, and this Syrophoenician woman, she is, she's Greek, she's a Gentile, she does not worship the God of Israel, she also has a daughter who needs healing, her little daughter. In verse 27, Jesus' response is harsh. Sometimes people try to clean up Jesus, but I think Jesus is just being harsh here. He's still Jesus, don't worry. He's still our Lord and God. No one else in the gospel is responded to as harshly possible exception of the disciples. <laughs> the disciples get their comeuppance. But his response is harsh. So note, too, this reflects the Jewish understanding of this kind of cosmic story. Let the children be fed first, and then the others. The biblical understanding of the cosmos, God chooses Israel. We cannot get past that. If you... Okay, I'm trying to think of how to say this without being heretical. This is always a challenge. If it bothers you that God has a chosen people who he fights for, who he loves uniquely, the Bible's going to be hard for you. <laughs> God is going to be both the God of all creation and he has a people that he loves particularly. A people that he loves in a different way always for the good of the cosmos, but we'll get there. So this also reflects what Paul says in Romans, I came to bring the, go the gospel came to the Jew first and then the Greek, right? Jesus still has a mission among the Jews. He is the Messiah of Israel. And so this is, you know, he's not doing something new here. He's explaining, admittedly in a harsh way, what every Jew knows to be true what all of his people assume. He is the Messiah of Israel. He comes, let the children, the children of Israel, God's chosen people, be fed first and then the others. So interestingly, when he says, let the children be fed first, first automatically means there will be a second. Jesus has fed the 5,000 and he's now going to feed the Gentiles. The issue isn't, the food is for the children, go away. I'm only feeding these people today. These are fed first. So in his harsh response, there is nevertheless a promise. And this is, this is so often something we forget, like in our own prayer lives. That not yet is not the same as no. Not in this way is not the same as no. Not on your terms is not the same as no. And so often we think like, you know, I used to say in the hospital when I did hospital chaplaincy, the prayer for healing always works. Sometimes God heals our bodies and sometimes he heals our hearts and souls and minds. Families found this either very comforting or they asked me to leave. <laughs> because no one ever actually asked me to leave, but you could see them shut down. I think it's true, but it is also hard. We don't get to demand of God how he answers our prayers. But not yet is not the same as no. Let the children be fed first. Literally, let the children be satisfied. Let them eat all they want. Remember back to the feeding of the 5,000, people who had probably never had a full meal in their life. 
And then he says it is not right to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Um, this, again, is harsh. Dogs are, are unclean for Jewish people. You would have dogs out in the street eating trash. This is why it's such a big deal when, um, remember Lazarus in the Gospel of Luke, the dogs come and lick his wounds? It shows just how destitute he is. Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Verse 28, but she answered him, sir, other texts, mine says sir, others say Lord, which is interesting. Why would a Gentile woman call Jesus Lord? Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, for saying that you may go, the demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. So again, this is just so interesting historically. Her response reflects a uniquely Greek culture. In especially upper class households, um, people had little dogs. Jews don't, but Greeks did. They would have little dogs who ate under the table, and who specifically, because human nature doesn't change, were fed by children. <laughs> children were well known to slip little morsels of food to the little dogs under the table. She says to him, her phrase in Greek literally says, even the little dogs eat the children's crumbs. So this reflects, you know, she's coming out of this, she's Syrophoenician, she's coming out of this Greek world, and she meets him in his own metaphor. And Jesus says, so this I think is different. Oh man, it's not just the crumbs under the table. It's the crumbs that are given by the children. The morsels that are given by the children. Who are the children? Israel. Israel feeds the nations. What she's saying is that Israel is the one through whom the nations will be blessed. And this is so consistent with prophecy. God chooses Israel. That's true. He has a unique relationship with Israel. And through you, I will bless the nations. God chooses Israel because he loves the nations. Because he is the God of the whole cosmos, not of one, you know, like Baal is only the God of the Canaanites. Israel says, our God is the God of all nations. And so it is through Israel that we are blessed. And so there is an expectation in prophecy, and especially to Jesus, that Israel will bear fruit 30-fold and 50-fold and 100-fold. The fruit is bringing the nations. You know, Isaiah says, the temple is built on a holy mountain and all the nations will stream to your light. But in order to do that, the light has to shine. So look at this. This Syrophoenician woman who does not know the Lord God of Israel, you know, she's off like worshiping Athena or whatever, right? She's sacrificing to Artemis. She does not know the Lord God of Israel, and nevertheless, she has understood something that the scribes and Pharisees have missed. Jesus has just finished criticizing the Pharisees. Do you not understand what the prophet Isaiah said? And now here's this woman who gets it. So this is the only time in scripture that Jesus is beaten in a verbal repartee. And so when he says, he replies to her, because of what you said, literally because of your word, logos, the word of God has been opened to her. She has understood the scriptures in a way that the experts on the law have not. This is huge. This is, the tables have completely turned. How does this relate to us? The people who will open scripture to you, the people who will help you see God face to face, 
are not always the people we expect. (laughs) You don't get to write anyone off in the Christian life. Because the word of God may have been opened to them. We don't get to shut anyone down. Now again, there are good interpretations and bad interpretations. Like, please don't talk to me about Joel Steen, right? Like, please don't come at me with prosperity gospel. Um, I mean, you can, and we can talk about it, and it'll be fine. Like, we'll still be friends. But, but <laughs> we have a very different understanding of the gospel. There was a headline in the Babylon Bee a few years ago that says, Joel Olstein Googles, what is a trinity? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, okay, harsh like Jesus. There are good and bad interpretations, and yet anyone could be part of opening up God's word to us. That's the first emphasis. The second, who is Jesus? The God of the nations, the Messiah of the nations, we see for the first time. This is fairly radical. So, Mark 7, 31 to 37. Still in Gentile territory. Mark 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon toward the Sea of Galilee, the region of the Decapolis. Jesus is now going even deeper into Gentile territory. We thought Tyre was hostile. He is now moving, again, by himself, interesting, deeper into Gentile territory. I lost my place. Toward the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay a hand on him. So in biblical literature... Deafness and the struggle to speak. This man has both. He is both deaf and he struggles to speak. They are a malady that is afflicted upon people. And interestingly, um, healing of them is often associated with a return from exile that there's a sense in which when people read about deafness and the inability to speak, Israel is separated from the temple. They are separated from Jerusalem. They are separated from the presence of God. So they cannot hear or praise God because they're in Babylon. See this metaphor kind of building up? Healing them is a sign of the Lord's power and of the return to right relationship, the return to exile. Isaiah 43, 9, this relates to the return from exile in context. You can look at all of Isaiah 43 if you want. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. That people, a sign of God's presence, of God's movement, is the healing of deafness and blindness, which we'll talk about next week. And then in Exodus 41, then the Lord, 4, not 41, 4, 11, then the Lord said to him, who gives speech to mortals? Who makes the mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Speech is a gift given to us from God. It's one of the things that makes us different from animals. So this is similar to the power Jesus shows in calming the sea. Who has authority over the wind and waves? The Lord God. Who gives speech? The Lord God. Extra poignant because Jesus is the word, the logos. So once again, this crowd has come to him. In verse 33, he took him aside in private away from the crowd and put his fingers into his ears and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephthatha, that is, be opened. When I was in Sunday school, I was 
equal parts intrigued and grossed out by this story. This is so like visceral bodily Jesus, right? Like if you've forgotten that Jesus is a human being, this will remind you. He puts his fingers in the man's ears. He spits. Um, It doesn't appear he spits on the man, though he'll do that next week. And he touches his tongue. Does this like feel weird to anyone? Have you, did you read this and are like, like remember my pastor at my old church? That doesn't sound like Jesus to me. <laughs> like, um, it feels like, it feels, it feels weird. It feels icky. It's, it's, you know, like we like the Jesus feeding the 5,000 where he's like sitting on the grass and he has the bread and he blesses and he breaks. Um, this is earthy Jesus. <laughs> this, is, this is hippie crunchy Jesus. Down to earth Jesus. Why? Why? Something is going on here. So, again, we have to remember context. Jesus is in Gentile territory. Healing by putting fingers in ears, spitting and touching the tongue. What does this relate to? He touches the man's ears because he is deaf. He spits and touches his tongue because he cannot speak. This is what, in, when scholars talk about the ancient Near East um, and things like this, they call sympathetic magic. The idea that you, um, you know, there's a relationship between the tongue and speech. So he, you touch the tongue. There's a relationship between hearing and the ears, so you touch the ears. Sympathy, you know, sympathetic. There's a relationship between the two. This would be very familiar to Greeks. They would have all sorts of doctors and mu- musicians. I mean, maybe magicians <laughs> and, and people who would be practicing these sorts of healing arts. This is what, what healing in the ancient Greek world looked like, touching sympathetic magic. It is often criticized in the Old Testament. This sort of kind of cultic practice would be anathema um, to many Jews. This may be why Matthew and Luke cut this story out. This story is not in Matthew and Luke. It feels too weird to them too, apparently. Jesus here is behaving as a Greek healer, not a Jewish rabbi. Isn't that interesting? So here in Gentile territory, he is coming to them in a way that they can understand. And this is also why, you know, I'm I'm a big advocate of church unity, and like I said on Sunday, we shouldn't like tear each other down because we're worshiping right and they're worshiping wrong. But I actually think diversity in Christianity is good because Jesus comes to us in ways we can understand. I love beautiful high church liturgy. I like bells. I like incense. I like stained glass windows. I love that stuff. My grandmother, who's a lifelong Southern Baptist, does not. That is disorienting to her. She wants to sing in the garden. (laughs) She wants, you know, three songs in a sermon. Jesus, who's right? Me, but no. (laughs) Robert Lee gives me an amen. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, snake handling is a whole different thing. <laughs> I'm not sure Jesus is coming to anybody that way. <laughs> but Jesus comes to us in a way that we can understand. This is why, like, I may recommend a book to you, and you're like, I hate this. I don't get it. This does not make me feel closer to Jesus. And someone else may be like, Yes, because we are different people. We are Greeks and Jews, for, to use a metaphor, not like literally. Um, we're all Gentiles, literally. But Jesus comes to us in a way we can understand, and sometimes that feels weird to people, <laughs> which again is not the same as saying everything goes. If you decide to become a cat murderer and say, well, I'm doing it for Jesus, like, probably come see me. We have to have a pastoral talk. I might call you a therapist, <laughs> but um, also I love cats, so it'd be hard for me. 
But there is, there is something about this. Jesus in Greek country acting like a Greek because he's the God of the Greeks. Athena's not the true God. Artemis isn't the true God. Jesus Christ, the Lord God of Israel, is. But why would he expect Greeks, if the light of Israel is going to shine to them, he doesn't expect them to become Jews first. They can't change who they are. So then again, this is so... Oh, this may... We could spend the whole time on this. Fatha, be opened, blah, blah, blah. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was unstopped, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one. Isn't it interesting when he tells them to tell people things and not? This is why so many scholars spend their whole lives arguing about the messianic secret in Mark. But the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. I love that. It's so human nature. Okay, yeah, I'll do that, Jesus. Hey, have you guys heard? And interestingly, Mark, you know, Mark uses so few words. He doesn't, they're all carefully chosen. He is not sloppy. It's not an accident that Jesus tells the Syrophoenician woman, your word because of your word, your daughter is healed. It's not an accident that Mark says they, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Not just said it, but proclaimed it. So interestingly, they're contradicting Jesus, and yet these Greeks are the missionaries of the gospel. These Greeks are now proclaiming the good news this good news, that the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. So like the Syrophoenician woman who has known prophecy, even though she is not Jewish, these people are proclaiming the same way the disciples were sent out to proclaim. Jesus is the God of all creation. Note here we have, oops, I guess I should finish reading this section. Verse 37. Then they were astounded beyond measure. I love that. Mark's so drama. They were astounded beyond measure. Different, remember, from how the, remember, oh, remember last week in the boat, the disciples were um, not astounded, they were afraid. But here, this, these people are astounded beyond measure an overflowing of, a, of amazement, of awe. Saying, he has done everything well, he makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. A new title for Jesus, this time from Gentiles. The one who does everything well, who makes the mute to hear and the deaf to speak. I can't wait. At the end of class, we should like read the list of things that we came up with that Jesus has been called. I think it'll be really interesting. I hope one of you is writing it down because I'm not. He makes the mute to hear and the deaf to speak. So this is so interesting. They are the ones who get it. The disciples have not understood. They don't understand about the loaves. This will be a continuing theme. Next week, disciples still won't understand about the loaves. The Pharisees don't understand. Do you not understand? Are you so hard of heart? Do you not know the law? Rightly, Moses, no, Isaiah prophesied against you. But the enemies of Israel get it. (laughs) This is what's going on in this whole turn toward the Gentiles. So then we're back to this, what's, you know, I should quit calling it the messianic secret. I'll start calling it the messianic mystery. Because there's no secret. Jesus is the Messiah. The mystery. Why is Jesus sometimes hidden and sometimes revealed? Why does he ask people sometimes to hide him and sometimes to reveal him? I think it's because there is still a question. We know Jesus is the Messiah. We now have new information. He is the Messiah of Israel and the Messiah of the nations. 
That's why he's done all this in Gentile territory. He is the one promised to Israel, and he is the one who will heal the nations. He was the one through whom that light that all the nations will be drawn to will shine. So we know, too, that he is the Son of God, the gospel, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What does that mean? What kind of son is he? What kind of Messiah is he? This is one of the reasons we've been writing down those names. What sort of Messiah is this? I've said this before, but it's still true. That question will only be answered at the cross. Jesus is about to embark on a journey proving that this Messiah is not the one you expected. (laughs) Or not like the one you expected. He is and he isn't. He fulfills the law and he goes into Gentile territory. He is the one who is stronger and Rome will kill him on the cross. He is the giver of the law and he is bound by the law. And I think that's what's going on with this messianic mystery is that until we're at the cross and at the tomb, And at Easter Sunday, something about Jesus is going to be hidden. We did it. We got all the way through chapter 7. Next week, we're going to look at chapter 8, verses 1 through 26, where there will be more blindness and more feeding of bread. So um, we'll see you all then. Register for Food for Thought if you haven't already. Join us for All Souls. Is there anything else I'm missing? I don't think so. Great. Thank you for being here. Enjoy your small groups. Oh, one thing. I know I'm behind on uploading the recording. I'm going to go upload today and last week right now. So (laughs) we'll be all up to date.